So, we're starting this uh, episode with Benjamin Harrison, who was the president from 1889 through 1893, with Levi P. Morton and his vice president on the Republican ticket. So, Benjamin Harrison was a long line of um, the hoi polloi, the blue bloods. His great-grandfather was Benjamin Harrison V, the fifth of a long line of Benjamin Harrisons. He was the governor of Virginia, and he signed the Declaration of Independence. His son, which was Benjamin Harrison's grandfather, was President William Henry Harrison. This was the genius that didn't wear a hat and a coat and rode his horse in the cold rain and gave the longest inaugural speech in history and died 30 days into office. I was wondering if they were related. Oh, yeah, old Tippecanoe. And Tippecanoe's son, who was the father of Benjamin Harrison, was John Scott Harrison. He was an Ohio congressman of the Whig Party. So it's a long tradition of politics, a.k.a. bullshit. So then we have Benjamin Harrison, who by all accounts was sort of an introverted guy, and he became the president. Which number of president was this? Do you know? <laughs> uh, 23rd? Yeah, let's go with that, 23rd. Um, in 1877, this is a year that we talked about with our last group of presidents, um, and it was a big year of strikes and revolts and hobos and just people refusing to be underserved and underpaid and all the railroads kind of coming to a, a screeching halt. Rutherford B. Hayes calls in the militia to get everybody moving again. Um, it's a time when America really revealed its true colors, one of the many times, that it turned against its own people who just wanted fair pay and fair treatment. And um, yeah, America showed that it was willing to use violence and guns against those people before it would give them that fair treatment to serve the rich. Um, Harrison happened to be one of the people involved in that. He led the militia of Indiana against strikers and their allies during the Great Uprising of 1877. Um, this was treated by the media as, quote, a war against society. Vigilante anti-committees formed in towns everywhere. So, you know, everybody was really um, pumping up this hatred against the, the strikers and the hobos. So your common working class people, you know, it's kind of the same crap you see nowadays where um, they get us to hate who they want us to hate. Um, back then, it was the same thing. So they're like, these tramps, they're screwing everything up. You know, like, they're trash. <coughs> get them. So <laughs> um, these tramp committees, these anti-tramp committees were forming in towns everywhere. And there was this one company called Western Gunworks that ran a booming business selling a kind of primitive machine gun that they called the Tramp Terror. Damn. So in other words, they were marketing this thing as it would mow down tramps so easy. You know, you could just shoot all the tramps you want. Um, Benjamin Harrison had the exclusive distinction of having served the railway corporations in the dual capacity of lawyer and soldier. So in other words, these strikers, these people fighting for their rights, um, on the one hand, he was one of the people pointing a gun at him, threatening violence unless they would serve the rich and help the rich get richer. And on the other hand, he was one of the people working at the desk to figure out how to use the powers of the law against them. This all-powerful constitutional uh, law that we have that, let's not forget, was made by a bunch of rich guys um, who we've talked about in former podcasts. So... He was both a lawyer and a soldier. He prosecuted the strikers of 1877 in the federal courts, and he also organized and commanded a company of soldiers during the strike. Um, in 1888, 
Harrison did not win the popular vote. He was the third president to be elected through the Electoral College. So what, what number did we just say he was? 23rd? Yeah. So in 23 presidents, three of them already, the, the majority of the American population had voted for the other guy. And the Electoral College said, eh, you know, that was cute. You guys, you know, you put in the effort and we appreciate it, but nah. <laughs> Actually, this guy's going to serve us better, so you'll get over it. You'll get over it. And indeed, we do. We always get over it and do it all over again. Um, he was a strong advocate of black people's right to vote, which sounds really good. And I'm not going to say there wasn't a, uh, what should I say, a underpinning of high ideals underneath it. But let's not forget that at that time, almost every black person in America would vote Republican. The Democrats were the ones in the South during the Civil War that had tried to keep slavery going, that had tried to oppress them. Black people hated the Democratic Party. So for a Republican to try to push the black rights to vote, it's not unmixed with a lot of self-interest. Because any Republican knows that what that's going to equate to is them maintaining more power. Um, About the best thing that could happen to any Republican back then was black people voting. In 1889, a year later, 19 days after taking office, Harrison signed a proclamation opening 1.9 million acres of, quote, unassigned lands in Oklahoma Indian Territory to settlers on March 3rd. So actually, I've got a friend um, that told me that her ancestors were part of this, and it was really interesting reading about Benjamin Harrison and realizing, oh, crap, this is the thing she talked about. So... This opened up these unassigned lands, which were, of course, stolen from the Indians on March 3rd. Um, On April 22nd of that year, at high noon, a gunshot signaled 50,000 settlers to cross into Indian territory by wagon, horseback, bicycle, train, or foot to claim all the land they could before nightfall. It was like reality TV back then. It was like a game show, like bang, and you just got 50,000 white people charging into Indian territory just to stake out their claim of land. And whatever you staked out by nightfall, it's yours. Um, You can imagine this was quite a ploy for Benjamin Harrison to gain popularity. All the greedy, land-hungry white people must have eaten this up and loved him. In 1889, in his first message to Congress, Harrison calls the Indians an, quote, ignorant and helpless people whose best chance at survival was assimilation. He thought all the adults belonged on farms and all the children should be enrolled in school. And, um, you know, these children were stolen from their families, were put in schools where they were punished for speaking their own language. They were given white haircuts, white clothes, and basically shaped to be second or even third-class citizens in our country because they certainly couldn't live like white people. Um, and they were just kind of – it was it was part of a big blanket campaign of oppression um, that really was one of the, the final tactics to break the, the strength of the indigenous people of this land. You know, first there's the treaties, there's the deception to keep them confused, um, there's the lies, and when that doesn't work, that's the outright violence, there's the wars, and finally, you know, in the wars, we have enough violence to push them onto reservations, all right, you stay there, and then we start stealing the land from them on the reservations, the little bit of land we've given them, and now we're breaking up the last bit of their tribal identity by putting their kids in schools where they're made to feel ashamed of who they are, and making the adults... Um, take jobs they didn't want. And let's not forget how our economy works. It's very competitive. So when they take jobs they don't want, it's to gain wealth against the other guy. It's the beginning of them not being the tight, 
um, tribe that they used to be, where everything is shared completely. That's something that was really a big part of the campaign. Um, a year later, in 1890, um, agents surprised and tried to arrest Sitting Bull. When he resisted, they shot him. Two weeks later, soldiers shot unarmed men, women, and children of the Sioux tribe before some of the warriors could arm themselves at the Wounded Knee Massacre. Mm. 146 Sioux and 29 soldiers were killed. Harrison completely ignored any uh, any idea or charges of um, wrongdoing to shoot at unarmed women and children and men. Um, he had the reputation of the human iceberg. Even back then, by the standards of the soldiers who were still fighting the Indians, he was a cold motherfucker. He honored the 7th Cavalry and awarded medals of honor to 20 of the soldiers participating in that. Boo. As North and South Dakota, Montana, Washington, Idaho, and Wyoming became the newest states, Harrison forced the Sioux Nation and the Dakotas to divide into separate reservations and relinquish 11 million acres of land. The Crow were forced to relinquish 1.8 million acres of land for settlement in Montana. As soon as it becomes a state, it's like, ooh, you know, let's steal more land from the Crow. Um, more settlers poured in. As more Indians accepted land allotments, and this is what I was alluding to, you have private land ownership. It's no longer tribal land. He opened surplus land to settlers acquired from the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Sac, and Fox, the land from the these four tribes. Um and this campaign, you know, the way they would do it is you were given private land, and since you were only given a certain amount of private land, they'd already done the math and figured out, well, if we give everybody in the tribe, make them have their own private land, that's going to leave surplus land, because we're certainly not going to give them more land. So let's make sure that it adds up, that everybody gets their private land, and now their surplus land. And this, well, what do you know? This comes to the white people, too. We'll settle that as well. So it was another way to shrink the reservation and divide the strength of the tribe. A year later, in 1891, um, you know, I like to talk about the the riots and the other things happening in the country during these presidency. It's sort of, to me, it's a way of sort of checking the pulse of the country. What's happening under this leadership? In 1891, in New Orleans, there were lynchings in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Eleven Italian-Americans were murdered by a mob for their alleged role in the murder of a police chief after some of them had been acquitted. This was perhaps the largest single lynching in United States history. Now, as I'm reading through all these riots, one of the things I find interesting is um, we're taught somewhat about the violence against blacks around this period. I don't hear so much about the violence against other immigrants. You know, this whole – and I wondered why that was. And I started realizing that, you know, this reaction, this um, this reaction to the violence against blacks, really feeds into the narrative of the civil rights movement happened, and now things are fair, you know. And it's a very liberal democratic view of history. We had a problem, we fought by God, we voted for the right people, and it got fixed. And I wondered, well, what about these other immigrant groups? Why doesn't that fit into the narrative? And here's my little theory on that. It's because it questions the whole idea of the melting pot. If we're going to be proud of this nation of immigrants, what does it say when we start looking at all the immigrants pouring in and we see violence between these different ethnicities over and over and over? The biggest la mass lynching in U.S. history was against Italian-Americans. I would have never guessed that. A year later in 1892, there's the Mitchamore in Clark County, Alabama. 
A group of rural farmers, farmers who called themselves Hell at the Breach, believed that the economy was being controlled by a small group of businessmen. I think they were right. They entered Coffeeville and murdered one of the businessmen over their anger regarding disenfranchisement. A vigilante group of 500 retaliated, killing five farmers. So here was a battle, uh, a class war between farmers and the businessmen they were starting to be really suspicious of. Um, that same year, in 1892, we've got the Homestead Steel Strike, or Massacre in Homestead, Pennsylvania, where the Carnegie Steel Company, with private Pinkerton security agents, put down a strike, which left seven strikers and three agents dead, and 11 strikers and 12 agents injured. At this time, we were having some of the biggest capitalist tycoons that have ever been in U.S. history. Um, this was kind of their heyday. We've got Carnegie pumping steel into the United States. Suddenly, we've got the first skyscrapers. Buildings are starting to, to reach for the sky. Um, steel is just changing the shape of America. We've also got Rockefeller out there who's running pipelines and gas is fueling um, lights. And right around the corner, we're about to have this... Uh, you know, this is the oil fueling, fueling the lights, and a byproduct of the oil that's being refined is the gasoline. And right around the corner, that's about to start fueling these cars that we know how that shaped America. Mm. And out there, we've also got the railroads that have been established now and are just, you know, the, the arteries of commerce of the United States. And we've also got J.P. Morgan out there. Um, one of the biggest, most crooked bankers. He's a man that's so rich at this point that a couple times in history, he actually lends money to the United States. They go to him for a bailout, this private banker. Um, it was such a crooked time, such a ripe time for, for crookedness in United States history. Um, in 1893, in the Journal of the Knights of Labor, they wrote, Complaint is made that the tramps intrude into the parks. To my mind, it is a greater cause for complaint that the tramps' counterpart, the millionaire, has grabbed so much of the land that men who would gladly be farmers are forced to tramp. Um, so this tramp crisis, this reaction of people that are not getting served by the economy, is continuing. You know, they, th this is behind a lot of the strikes that we read about, that we hear about. And, um, you know... I found found it interesting in that that writing that already there's parts that tramps are starting to sleep in. You know, I think of like the modern tramp on the park bench. It goes all the way back to 1893. In his third message to Congress, Harrison admits that the Sioux had some just complaints over reductions of rations and delay in government services, but goes on to say the Sioux tribes are naturally warlike and turbulent and posed a threat to white settlers. The uprising of complaining Sioux was handled by a militia, with orders to prioritize first, thorough protection of the settlers, and second, of bringing the hostiles into subjection with the least possible loss of life. Mm. <clears throat> that same year, in 1893, um, during his final year in office, Harrison commemorated Columbus's 400th anniversary of discovering America and appointed October 21st as a general holiday to honor him. <laughs> so all this crap about, you know, celebrating Columbus and it now competing with Indigenous Peoples Day, Harrison's the guy that started Columbus Day. You know, let's commemorate this great guy that discovered this empty country full of savages that we could come rush in. And uh, as Thomas Jefferson uh, encouraged the doctrine of discovery, mm -hmm. if we found it and there's nothing but you know, half-naked savages on it, it's the same thing as being unpeopled. You discovered it, it's yours. Um, so for all that, 
you know, I say Benjamin Harrison was a bastard. And, <laughs> yeah, I in wouldn't follow him. Of, in a long line of bastards. 